0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Busy morning for me. And I'm sorry that you have to all put up with so much of me all in one day. It is. Any, any volunteers to do the second half of the worship set? Anybody? All right. Well, this morning we are looking in Romans chapter six. Uh, I don't have a. PowerPoint. You're kind of on your own for the PowerPoint. <clears throat> I told I told um, Jesse he could make one up as he goes along. You know, he could just kind of randomly put up points. Maybe not. Um, uh, Chapters 1 through 5 of Romans, as you've been looking at, Paul has really focused on uh, what Christ has done to give us justification, to make us right before God. And he ends in chapter 5 with this really amazing description of God's grace. And uh, two weeks ago when I last shared from Romans, I talked about uh, how he piles up, Excuse me. He piles up this list of words that describe uh, an ever-increasing or abounding size of grace, and he ends with a final description of, where it could best be translated, hyper-super-abundant grace. Right, and he has this uh, just this lack of words to describe the size of God's grace, and the backdrop for that <coughs> is the growing or increasing of sin. And he said, you know, we're all sin. We were born by Adam into sin. And all that the law has done is increase the size of sin. Right? So before we had law, we were sinning, but we really didn't know to what extent we were sinning. When God gave his commandments and his law in Scripture, all it did is show how really, really messed up we were. How really off we were uh, and lost in sin. But Paul says that's not a problem because instead of... Uh, damning us further to greater judgment, God responded to that with even more grace. Right. Uh, you know, we're all Christians, and and uh, but we all sin, right? We all make mistakes. We say things we regret, and uh, you know, it's kind of a standard thing on the way to church. At least once, you got to say something really stupid to your wife on the way to church. You know, uh, that's our tongues get out of control, our thoughts get out of control, our emotions get out of control. We sin, right? But every day, uh, God's grace is greater. God's grace is greater. And there's, there's nothing you can do to change or affect God's love for you. We are, stand before God justified by faith in Christ. And what Christ did for us on the cross puts us fully in right standing and right relationship with the Father. Fully, right? Nothing we can do can change that. And that's really the message of chapters one through five. We have been justified, and we stand in a position not because we're morally good, but we we, can't, we stand in a position of ones who have been made right with the Father, and our relationship has been fully restored. Right. So that's really what he talks about in in one through five. But it's real important to to back up just a little bit and see that it's it's grace greater than all of our sin. But its grace is greater than all kinds of sin as well. And when you think about sin, and I think about sin, what do you normally think of? Well, for me, I tend to think about the rules that I break, right? Um, the commandments, the specific things that I do that I know I shouldn't. I tell a lie. I look at things I shouldn't look about. I, I think about doing things that I know are wrong. I break certain commandments, right? And as we move into chapter 6, 7, and 8, if we only think about sin that way, we'll be confused. Right? Because we'll look at chapter 6 and chapter 7 where it talks about being dead to sin. And we're going to go, you know, the thing is, I'm supposed to be dead to sin, but every day I wake, I'm tempted by the same exact things. Anybody have that experience? You find that you're tempted by the same things now you were 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. For those of you who are that old. For your younger ones, you know, you're tempted by the same things you were last week. Okay? Um, and you go, What is this being dead to sin thing? Well, if you see sin only as specific acts and deeds of breaking a command, then this will be Romans six seven eight will be very confusing to you so we've got to back up a little bit and look at what Paul means when he talks about sin, and he really lays out what sin is in chapters one, two, and three, right and to help us uh, picture this, chapters one, two, and three of Romans really could be could be pictured or painted in this in this the parable of the prodigal son you know that story well father has wealth on land and he has two sons right uh, the older son is mr. goody two shoes right always does things right always follows the law he's a good son right in terms of his outward performance younger son is the opposite. Right? He does not follow the, the rules. And in fact, he wants, uh, his inheritance early. Shows huge disrespect to his father by asking for what would only come to him as if his father was dead. And so he's saying in, in essence, Dad, I wish you dead. And I don't have time to wait for it, okay? Uh, I want my inheritance now. So the second son's a guy who does not follow the rules, goes his own way. And we all, we all know the story. He goes off, squanders his wealth uh, in, in lawless living, right? Uh, every kind of imaginable sin. Uh, comes to the census feeding pigs out in the mud and says, you know, I could at least be a hired hand. I could at least be a laborer in my father's fields and I wouldn't at least be starving to death. I know my dad, uh, I'm not worthy to be a son, but I could at least be a hired hand. He goes home. But what he meets, of course, is a father who's, uh, like like Paul describes here in the end of chapter 5, whose super abundant hyper grace is so much more than his sin, right? Uh, that that picture is one kind of sin. And that's oftentimes what we think of, the person who's the lawbreaker and what we do that's prodigal, that's blatantly sinful. But uh, uh, the story really is mostly about the older brother, right? The story really is about This brother who did everything right, but at the end of the story, we get a true picture of his heart. And what is his heart? He's angry at the father's kindness. And we find that all along he's been doing the good things, not because he loves the father, but just like the younger son, he just wants the father's goods. And he's found that the way he can get the father's goods is by being obedient, by being compliant. But he does not love the father. He can't rejoice in the grace of the Father, right? Well, Paul really talks about those two groups of people in chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 1, he says this. He says, uh, yes, they knew. He's talking about the prodigal, right? Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks, right? They began to think of foolish ideas of what God was like, and as a result, their minds became dark and confused Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols. And then he goes on to talk about their despicable behavior, uh, going off into homosexuality and all kinds of sin, right? That's the prodigal. Someone who never followed God, never worshiped God, never pretended to, right? And they made up false gods to worship. Uh, that's only actually a few verses. Uh, then Paul spends the rest of chapter 2 and the chapter 3 talking about who? The older brother, the Jew, the law keeper, the moralist, right? And he goes through two whole chapters to explain that the older brother, even though he's keeping the law or trying to, in the end is also no different than the first group. He's just like the prodigal, right? And notice how he finishes. He says a, a couple, of, well, in, in Romans he says this, you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents, or because you've gone through circumcision, because you kept the law. No. A true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. Right? His heart is right with God. Not because he keeps the rules, because of where his heart is, right? Um true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by God's spirit. When we think about sin, uh, and to really understand Romans 6, 7, 8, we've got to go back to that that starting point. The true root of sin, the true problem of sin, is a heart that is far away from God. Whether you are, are a prodigal who has chosen to never try to please the Father, and you've taken your inheritance, and you've physically gone the opposite direction as far away as possible, right? To get as far away from God as possible. Or, if you're the religious person who's gone to church your whole life, read your Bible, given money, taught Sunday school, done all the right things, but it's all been an outward means to manipulate God to get what you want. And your heart is equally a million miles away, right? Even though you're technically living in the same house your heart is a million miles away uh, Jesus put it this way you hypocrites Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you for he wrote these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me their worship is a farce for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God right and 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 so Paul's talks about both groups of people and he actually spends a lot more energy as Jesus did actually confronting the elder brother types. The religious good people who kept all the rules, did all the right things but their only goal in it was to manipulate God to get what they wanted just like the younger son. right? And their hearts were far, far, far from God. Uh, so that's the backdrop. And to really get chapter 6 you got to keep that in, in mind. What what sin is is a heart that is a million miles away from God. What righteousness is what 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 Jesus did for us that He describes in chapters four four and five is He brings us near to God and makes us right with Him, so that now we have a heart that, uh, as He said, by God's Spirit, uh, is drawn near to God's heart. Uh, so God's grace covers sin, but it covers all kinds of sin, especially this sin which is the root or chief of all sins, no matter how it gets exercised or practiced. The reason we are sinful is because our heart is far from God and we want nothing to do with Him. We are lost in darkness away from Him. Um, so, so that's what Jesus did. That's what justification is. It's making our heart right, bringing us into, into fellowship and communion once again with the Father. As He talks later in chapter 8, we are sons. We're made children. Right? We are re- reunited in relationship with God. So in, spite, in light of all that, though, uh, he comes to chapter 6, and, and this is what he says. He says, okay, well, that's what grace is. That's what justification is. That's what God has done for us. What should we say about all that, he says? Should we keep on sinning so that God can show, show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Okay? It's a good argument, actually. And if you understand what grace is, it makes sense. Okay, Now, you read it, and as Christians, who probably most of us are actually moralists as well, we're kind of shocked by that, and we go, well, no, that can't be right, right? But if you really think about what grace is, there's some truth in that. Because grace is super abundant. Grace is, in in a sense, it doesn't matter, my sin doesn't matter. Because the truth is, grace covers it all, right? So whatever you mess up today, whatever you mess up tomorrow, whatever you mess up for the rest of your life, grace covers it. So there's a, there's a sense in which we could say, well, what does it matter then? Yeah, it, you know, sin is no longer an issue for me because grace is just going to cover all my mistakes. Well, interestingly, uh, just as there are two, uh, um, ways to rebel against God before Christ there's really two often common ways that people respond to this question of grace after conversion and they kind of fall into the same two categories the prodigal and the elder brother right uh, one group says hey you know this is great cuz now i can sin all i want and i don't even have to feel guilty about it right uh yeeha bring it on okay Because, you know, God's paid for it all. It's all covered. So I'm just going to have a good time, right? Uh, One of the most famous uh, proponents of this view is actually the monk Rasputin, you know, from the movie Anastasia. Uh, He uh, taught this. He taught, you know, look, you're actually doing God a favor when you sin because it's a chance for you to receive forgiveness. And we all know how good it feels to feel forgiveness. And we all praise God when we're forgiven. So his logic was, when I sin and confess, I praise God more. Therefore, sin more, so you can praise God. Right? Sounds a little odd, but that's what he taught. right? And you can see where it got him. Um, and, and, and maybe most of us wouldn't quite take it to that extreme. But isn't there a sense where we can gain, kind of get this attitude that you know, sin really doesn't matter? Where we don't take sin in our life very seriously. Uh, Maybe the big sins, you know, the ones that are socially acceptable, uh, you know, like most people don't want to, you know, put on their Facebook page, I'm a porn addict, right, because it's not socially acceptable. Uh, So we, you know, we're horrified by those things, child molesters, murderers. But the more socially acceptable sins, we're quite comfortable with. You know, I'm actually quite proud, and most of my pride is based in my Christian ministry, but nobody seems to mind that, so I'm not going to worry about it. Right? I'm consumed with selfishness, but I am selfish in ways that are socially acceptable, so I don't have to worry about it. And there's a sense in which we can start um, kind of ignoring sin, and we can take the attitude that it doesn't really matter because it's all covered by grace anyway. Right? Uh, you, you know, you're in this place if if you look back and you evaluate your life, and you would say, you know, it's been months since I've confessed anything. Okay, If it's been months since you've confessed anything, one of two things is true. You've reached sainthood and you no longer sin. Or, sin doesn't matter to you anymore. You have become callous to sin. You, like this person, is saying, we might as well sin, because the more we sin, the more grace there is. I'm just living in grace. So I don't need to confess. I don't have to worry about sin. Well, that's obviously not what Scripture teaches. In fact, 1 John, John says clearly, if we say we have no sin, we are a liar and God is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive, right? Confession ought to be a daily part of the Christian life. If you're not confessing sin, you're not taking sin seriously, right? Or you're clueless, you're clueless. About the condition of your heart, where you are, or you really have reached sainthood, and then in that case you should be up here preaching because I I don't I shouldn't be right. I have no right to because I am a sinner. I do it by God's grace. Um, But then there's the other side. That's the the prodigal side. The other side goes like this, and it's the elder brother version. And it says it says this. It says grace. This grace is a terrible idea. What was God thinking? You know, this is exactly why you know this whole Christianity thing is a problem, because you just give people free reign, and if I let my children really go by grace, they're all gonna go into sin and can't have that. So what we gotta do is we've got to redouble our efforts and make twice as many rules. Right? If we were moralists before, we're gonna really be moralists now, we're gonna make everything a rule and a law, and we're gonna put very clear fences around everybody because if we don't People are just going to go off into crazy sin, right? So it's, it's interesting to me, it's very interesting and fascinating to me, that uh, the majority of, of Christian organizations take this track, right? And no matter what we call ourselves, the truth is, no organization really wants to run by grace, right? Because there's too much freedom and there's too much risk involved. We want to control people's behavior. We want to put rules on people. We want to put laws. We want to put clear fences. And we want to make it clear, grace or not, you're not going to do those things. And if you do, you are out of here, right? Because we don't trust grace. We don't trust grace, right? We trust rules and law and controlling people and controlling things. And that's the elder brother. I think the ironic thing in all this is that oftentimes... People who were uh, prodigals before they came to Christ uh, are the ones who most naturally become elder brothers after Christ, right? They're the ones who live high, wild, crazy lives, drug, sex, alcohol, crazy life, you know, and they come to Christ and they have a true conversion experience and then they become the moralist, right? They reject their past life and they think the solution is to become extremely legalistic, right? I've got to get away from all that stuff and I've got to live a different kind of life. So they put uh, law into their life to legislate and manage who they are. Right? Uh, the other extreme, and I know people on this extreme as well, people who grew up religious, grew up in Christian homes, but uh, but when they came to Christ, discovered grace. Right? And they kind of went to the other extreme. And they become kind of more the prodigal. It's like, ah, yeah, just whatever. It's all, I'm forgiven. Right? And uh, we can easily flip those roles. Uh, the question, though, is e- Is either one of those roles the correct response to grace, right? Is either one of those what we're supposed to do? Well, Paul says no. In fact, this is, this is what he says. Um, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by actually, I need to back up. Verse two. Let me read verse two. I skipped the best part. Uh, verse two. Of course not. Okay. Should we sin more so grace can be more abundant? Of course not. May it never be. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Right. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? And Paul's answer is neither. Uh, neither to go off rampant in sin, nor is his answer to, to become the moralist, right? to start devising for ourselves rules that govern us. He says, he, in fact, he comes up with a whole new category. He says, instead, you've got to understand that we have died to those things, so how can we live in them? How can we continue, literally, how can we continue living or walking in sin? Uh, he says, really, that our life should be ruled by grace. In 11 verse 20 of chapter 5, he says, uh, the law was given so all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned, uh, God's grace increased. So that just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead. Right? What does it mean to be ruled by grace? Well, That's exactly what Paul unpacks in chapter 6 and 7. What does it mean for us to to be ruled by grace? Not by law, and not by lawlessness, but to really have our life governed by grace. What does that mean? Well, first thing he talks about is he says, we have now, uh, through conversion, through baptism, joined with Christ in his death. This is a new new thought, a new uh, doctrine, really, that Paul brings into the book of Romans and and it's, it it expands what the gospel is uh, up to this point what he's talked about is really what Jesus has done to rid our life of sin right uh and for many people that's the full extent of what the gospel is uh they think the gospel is God dealing with the problem of sin which which Jesus does right he takes our sin and removes it from us he washes us and cleanses us uh but Jesus death on the cross was not only for sin other things happened when Jesus died on the cross. And Paul says one of those things that happened is that we were grafted into his death. Okay, We joined with or participate with him in his death. Uh, he says this most uh, pointedly in verse 5, where it says, For if we have been united with him in death, like this, uh, in this likeness, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The word united with him there is really the idea of being planted together. Uh, it was a farming term, and it, it was a term that would have been used for grafting something into a, you know, a branch into a tree, right? It's taking something and it's planting it together. It's uniting it with. It's, it's grafting it in. And Paul says that we have been grafted into Jesus' death. So when Jesus died on the cross, not only did he die there with our sins, but it says that somehow we participated with him in his death. Now, sadly, Paul doesn't explain how this works. And uh, i read a lot of commentaries who tried to explain this. And I'll tell you what, I got so confused. Uh, I, Most of them, I didn't even know what they were talking about, right? Uh, and the, the bottom line is we don't know. We don't know how it happened. But uh, when we come to Christ... Uh, he says that we are baptized into Christ's death. Uh, what does that mean? Well, first of all, Paul uses the term baptism here to speak of literal water baptism, immersion. Okay, uh, But he does not mean by that that the act of bat- water baptism is what baptizes us into Christ's death. Uh, that would be a work that would... Uh, uh, that would that would be the source of salvation. Okay, we have a problem with that. We believe that Christ comes to us through faith alone. But this is what Paul means by it. In, in, in Paul's day, in the New Testament day, when you got saved, you were immediately baptized. Right? Uh, we we kind of have lost this somewhere, and now sometimes it's months, years before people get baptized. But in Paul's day, that was unheard of. If you had true faith in Christ, the first thing you did was you went out and received water baptism. So when Paul and I think Jesus in Matthew, when he uses that that same term to be baptized, he's speaking of conversion. He's speaking of that time or that event when you put faith, your faith in Christ and you receive Him, you get saved and you are baptized. So through conversion, or if you want to use Paul's language, baptism, he says that we are baptized into His death. Um, again, I don't know how that happens. I don't know if His death, you know. It's, it's confusing, you know. We live two thousand years later. Does that mean we're somehow time-beamed back to Jesus' death, or is Jesus time-beamed forward? I don't know. Uh, but there's a very real sense in which we die with Christ. Right? Uh, it's not just it's not just symbolic; it's real. And Paul uses language here that explains it as a real thing. We died; we were joined with Christ in His death. Now, of course, we didn't die. And there's not like you know there's not like a moment when your heart stops beating you know and everything shuts down and then God flips another switch and your your you know lights come back on not like that okay uh, in fact we don't die it says that we are grafted into His death we participate with Jesus death right um, so so what is it that died well it's not our body because it still will die uh, we we don't die physically what dies to us uh it says we die to sin right that's the death we experience specifically we die to sin we die to sin's power its control its mastery over us uh he says uh, have you forgotten this he said you know you romans should know this when you when you were baptized you were joined with christ in his death For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also uh, live new lives. We fully participate in all of Jesus' death, meaning what he suffered on the cross, his dying, his burial, where he says we're buried with Christ, and he says we will one day rise with Christ. Uh, We are no longer under sin's control and power. Here's, here's what that means. Before we were in Christ, we had no option or choice but to sin. Sin was Lord and master over us. It controlled us, right? When when we come to Christ, when we are converted, we die to that sin's power. Uh, it no longer has the grip over us that it did. Uh, we have been set free really from it's chains and it's bondage. So we're no longer uh, dominated by sin. As I started off sharing, uh, that may not be your experience. And right about here, I say, well, you know, that may be what the Bible says, but the truth is, I still feel oftentimes quite dominated by sin. Right? I still am tempted by the exact same things I was tempted by before temptation has not lost its power over me. In fact, in some ways, as I grow spiritually, temptation becomes more difficult. Because before, I only knew of three sins, right? I was only tempted by three things. Now I know of about 50 sins right? that I'm tempted by. Before, I just did them cluelessly, right? Now I'm much more sensitive to those things, right? Because I actually know that my pride is a problem. Before, I was just arrogant, and I thought that was how I was supposed to be, right? Uh, So temptation actually grows and increases, uh, my struggle with sin doesn 't become less it becomes more so what does this really mean uh, maybe you don 't have this problem maybe for you 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 've done with sin you've you 've died to sin you 've mastered it completely and you know this isn 't a problem for you but for many Christians it is um, what does it mean uh Remember, we need to go back to what our definition of sin is. right? To really understand this, what he's saying here, we need to go back to the very beginning and talk about what sin is. What do we say our definition of sin is? A heart that's far from God. right? A heart that's far removed from the Father. A heart that is hard and rebellious against God. A heart that does not delight in the Father, that does not enjoy Him, that does not want Him. Right? It's not it's not the deeds that we do that are the real issue. It is our heart. It is where we are in relationship with God. That's what matters, right? When we died to sin, we died to a heart that hated God the Father and wanted nothing to do with Him. That whether you were a moralist keeping all the rules or you were an absolute hellraiser. The truth is, we were the same place. We were people who were not in relationship with God and did not want to be. We wanted to be Lord over our own life. right? We invented our own gods and our own idols that we could control because we wanted to be God over ourselves. That was Adam and Eve's main sit in the garden. We want to be like God. We want to be in control of our life. We want to do what I want to do I don't want God telling me what to do. Right? when we come to Christ, we die to that old heart, that old way of living, that old bondage that was a barrier between us and God. And he says in verse 5 that we are now uh, partners also in His resurrection. And we have been raised to a newness of life. Uh, and that word that he used there, newness of life, is kind of an interesting word. He could have he said we've been raised to a new life, but he uses this unique Greek word that says, that means is translated newness, and it really has the idea of a whole quality of life that's different. It's not like it was before. Uh, the prophet puts it this way: He says, "I will take out your stony, dead, hard heart, and I will replace it with a heart of flesh." Right? That's new life. Right? That's dying to the old, being raised to the new, so that now we have a heart that is. Wonderfully responsive and sensitive to God, right? Uh, so this is what it means in real life, practical everyday life. Before I could sin, and I may or may not have been guilty, but mostly I was. I was worried about getting caught, right? So if I didn't get caught, I certainly wasn't going to be guilty, right? However, if you know my parents found out what I did, I would feel bad, right? Is that true guilt? No. It's just regret that I got caught, right? And feeling shame because my parents found out what I already know about myself, that I'm a creep, that I'm a jerk, that I'm a bad person, right? So I feel bad because I've exposed my heart, my wickedness inside. But I don't feel bad about sin. I enjoy sin, right, before Christ. But we die to that kind of life. And now we get a new heart, it's much more sensitive. And now, guess what? When I sin, I just can't enjoy it as much. right? It's just not as fun anymore. Because with it comes true guilt, true pain that I haven't just got caught, but that I have failed my Heavenly Father. Right? There is this woundedness inside because I now have a heart that's sensitive to the Father. right? Uh, when I hurt other people, it genuinely hurts me because my heart is different right that doesn't mean i don't turn around and hurt them again well sometimes i do right sometimes i still sin but i now am incredibly sensitive to that i do feel bad and i become painfully aware of my need for grace right i go you know god i i i feel horrible that i am that way inside but God says you don't have to beat yourself up over it. You don't have to torture yourself. It's good that you feel that way, but the solution is not to, to, to uh, wallow in your guilt. The solution is what? To receive my grace. To receive my flood of forgiveness, which is always more than your sin. right? Uh, but he says if you have died to sin, how can you keep on living that way? It's hard, I'll tell you. It's hard to keep on living that way. Because what used to be not so bad, what used to be just numbness, now uh, hurts, right? And now puts us in a place where we are aware of the separation between our Father and us, right? And so, I don't want to stay there anymore. I want, I want forgiveness. I want His grace. Uh, it's interesting, in the Old Testament, David m- models this so well. And, uh, you know, in many ways, Saul was actually a much be- better person than David. You know, King Saul's greatest mistake was that he just couldn't follow directions very well. Uh, but the directions he messed up were relatively small. He was faithful to his wife. He, he was a good dad. He, you know, followed the rules. David, on the other hand, um, had lots of problems. Um, uh, he married too many women. Uh, he showed favoritism toward his children. He did not deal with sin in his own family and sometimes in his own life. Uh, of course, his great sin was that he slept with another man's wife and then had the man murdered so he could marry her. Okay, This is not your model citizen. Okay, And yet God says what? He said, this is a man after my own heart. What does God mean by that? Here's this guy who in many ways is kind of a prodigal, honestly. He's a guy that oftentimes goes off and sins, and sin's huge, right? Sins in ways that make the front page, that make whole chapters of the Bible, right? And yet God says, this is a man after my own heart. What was the difference between David and Saul? Well, simply this. When David sinned, it tore him up inside, right? When Saul sinned, he became defensive And tried to justify himself. Uh, Notice what what David says after he sinned with Bathsheba in Psalm 32. He says, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has declared, uh, has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. So that's the difference. A person whose heart is, is connected with God's heart, when he sins, it's torment. It's torment, right? Inside, we, we get eaten up because we know something's wrong. Uh, day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. But finally, I confessed all of my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. The Lord says, "I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you in my unfailing love." Do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but the unfailing love, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. Right. It's the difference between David and Saul. Um, we died to sin, and we can really no longer continue in it. Um, we just can't, right? Now, does it mean we're, we're going to be sinless from this day on? No, we are going to sin, right? We are going to sin. In fact, verse 5 says, uh, we will be resurrected with Christ. Our final... Triumph over sin is not until the resurrection. So the good news is this. Uh, the battle you've had up to this point in your life with sin is going to continue the rest of your days till you die. Amen? <laughs> uh, okay. Not fun. It's life, right? But the thing is, we, we have been raised to a new kind of life. Been raised to a new kind of life. Go back to the story of the prodigal son. This, the prodigal comes back. And he uh, confesses his wrong. He seeks forgiveness. And the father doesn't even let him get the words out of his mouth. And he smothers him with love and grace. He throws on his best robe, his best ring. He blesses him. He kills the fatted calf, right? And uh, the older brother's angry and upset. And, um, you know, it shows his true heart. And notice what the father says to him. The father said, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me. And everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. That's exactly what Paul is saying. You were dead a million miles away from God. But you have come back to life through your participation with Jesus in his death. And now you live. You live in fellowship and communion with the Father. Are we going to sin? Yes. Uh, That's why Jesus, when he washed his disciples' feet, and he comes to Peter, and Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And Peter says, then wash all of me. Jesus says, that's not necessary. You have already been washed. Jesus says to you, through faith, through, through justification, you have been washed, you have been made clean. But you walk on this earth, and as you do, your feet get dirty, you sin. Right? It's not the end of the world, uh, but you need cleansing. And daily Jesus comes and he cleanses us. But we're walking in a different direction. We are walking in fellowship with the Father through what Christ has done for us and in what we have participated with Christ in as we've died with him, been buried with him, and raised to a new kind of life with him. Let's pray. Father, we do just thank you so much for uh, just the amazing things that you have done through for us through Christ. And Lord, I'm sure we're only beginning to scratch the surface of what you have really done to bring salvation and to give us this new kind of life. And Lord, help us to just be aware of um, of what the resurrection of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection means to us not just that someday we will abide with him in heaven, which we look forward to and we long for, but the power that it gives us today to live uh, differently in relationship to sin, that indeed it no longer has power over us. And while we still struggle with it, uh, it's different now. And we have been made alive to a new relationship with you As Christ has raised to new life, so we too rise to new life in him. Lord, help us to walk more in that new life, in that relationship, in that rightness with you as our Father. Uh, Lord, help us walk that way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.